Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I am one of your hosts, Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University, and I'm today here with another host, Carlo Di Politi from Sapienza University of Rome in Italy. And we are here to interview, to have a conversation with the author of a new book. The title of the book is Modern Monetary Theory and European Macroeconomics, published by Routledge in 2016. And the author is Dirk Hintz. Uh, Please, uh, Dirk, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a visiting professor at the European University of Flensburg in Germany. Um, I was also a visiting professor at Free University Berlin. Um, I worked at different universities. Uh, I got my PhD degree from University of Oldenburg and I studied at Göttingen. Um, and um, yeah, that's uh, when, uh, when I started uh, with economics. Hi, Dirk. I'm Carlo Di Politi from Sagenza University of Rome. I will also join Andrea in asking you some questions about your book. I think a good starting point could be for you to tell us where did the idea for the book come from? How was it born? Yes. Um, I, I did my PhD on economic geography, and we did the neoclassical model at University of Oldenburg, which we were using the so-called footloose capital model, and the current account was always balanced. So there were no current account imbalances. So um, there was no trade surplus or trade deficit. Um, in the real world, that was not the case. Um, and I finished my PhD, I finished writing in 2007. So the subprime crisis started and there were these global imbalances and the Eurozone imbalances. So I tried to figure out how it, how it can happen that countries export more than they import. And also the other way around, that countries import more than they export. And I, I found out that the, the story that the textbooks are telling us about uh, the creation of money and so on, that they are not, not really correct. Um, so I tried to, to find out what, what is really happening in terms of money creation, money transfers, international uh, payments. So, so when I found out, I thought, well, that's very interesting. Um, and it was by then like 2012 probably. Um, so I thought I, I, I would rather have liked to have a book when I started studying in which somebody would explain to me how money works, how money is created by banks, how money is created by the treasury, how money is created uh, through exports, uh, and how monetary and fiscal policy work uh, to to influence demand, because that has an effect on the current account. So, so I basically sat down to write a book for myself uh, 15 years uh, uh, earlier. Uh, so, so basically, the book was written for for young students who who start to to study economics and want to understand how money works. So this is uh, the target of the, of the book, uh, undergraduate students. 
Yes. So, so the idea is to write a book which, which starts to explain, first of all, why do we have money? And then a little bit about the economic institutions that surround money. So obviously, um, in economics, you have a lot of people saying that we have a free market and so on, but definitely it's not the case. First of all, we have property rights. And the second, of course, it's a big intervention by the government. We have public money. So the Eurozone is created by the European Central Bank. Um, and that means your central bank deposits are, are basically the ultimate form of money. Um, and again, that means that, that there is no free market and there's, that there's heavy involvement by the government, which is not bad. Uh, but of course, it, I think it's useful for students to understand how the monetary system works before they go into deeper uh, areas of economics. So, Dirk, without um, going too much into the, the details or telling us uh, who is the killer at the end of your book, uh, there was some um, leaps in, in, I mean, some passages on what you just said that possibly is not so clear for everybody. You said you started from international relations, this idea of the current account, which is uh, basically the difference between how much uh, a country earns from abroad and how much um, it, it, uh, it, it gives abroad in a sense. But then you start talking about more money. How do you see the relation or the relevance mm -hmm. of money in determining international relations? What, what was this link that you had in mind? So when you read a normal textbook, um, they, they basically tell you that, that net exports have something to do with, with basically uh, your, your savings. So um, they, they are using identities um, by, uh, by basically trying to, to find out what happens when you export more than you import, and then you have basically savings over investment. And most textbooks give you some kind of story that, that you are basically trying to save, and this is where the exports are coming from. At least in, in Germany, this is often being said, especially by, by my colleagues here uh, in, in other universities. So when, when I found out what happens in the real world, it was, it was a little bit different. So when I was working at University of Flensburg, um, I, one day I just walked to Denmark and, and I spent some money uh, on, on a sausage from, from a hot dog, basically, from Denmark and, and a Coke. Uh, and, and that was a current account transaction, and uh, I, I paid in cash. So it was very simple to record. So it is very obvious that when it comes to the current account, it's not the so-called capital account that is driving it. So it's not financial transfers that make it possible for me to, to buy something from Denmark. Um, but it's just the normal regular money that I have in my bank account that I use for, for making payments or I use to get cash, and then I use that cash to make payments. So that was something which... I think is, is basically a, a very important insight um, because most people still have some kind of gold standard mentality and they believe that if, for example, Sweden wants to buy something from the Eurozone, that they first need to export something in order to get euros and then they buy something from the Eurozone. But we have, we have now very big companies and they all have credit and access to, to foreign money is really not a problem. Um, so, so living in a modern world, um, the, the current account situation is, is to some extent much more easier because everybody now can, can buy stuff from foreign countries uh, using a credit card or, or using a bank account. So this brings us to uh, a next question that we had in mind, which is uh, if you can tell the listeners how commercial banks as well contribute to the creation of money. Well, yeah, the, the um, money creation from commercial banks works basically like this. 
um, they they are looking for borrowers, um, and when they find a borrower, borrower and they believe that the borrower can repay, then probably the borrower has to have some kind of collateral, or they they have to have some kind of business plan if it's a business. Or there needs to be some kind of income if, if it's a household, for example. So if just given given collateral, they just create the, the deposits uh, through lending. So basically, the moment that you sign the, the contract with the bank, the bank then basically says, now the loan is an asset because I expect repayment. And at the same time, they, they basically tell their computer workers to create some deposits in the computer system. So the banks are running elaborated computer systems, recording entries, uh, so-called credits, if you want. Um, well, we call them bank deposits. And, and that is basically how banks create money. So it's basically created out of nothing, but not for everybody, of course. So you, again, you have to have collateral. And when you make a repayment, so when you repay the loan, the bank deposits are gone. And this, of course, is one of the main sources of the credit cycle. Okay, basically uh, what you're uh, explaining in very in easy terms is this idea that economists will call endogenous money creation. But in the book you argue, I think in a very powerful way, that economists normally uh, still consider money to be something so exogenous. So it will come from the central bank. They even have a strange and abstract metaphors, such as uh, the central bank unloading banknotes from a helicopter. So uh, you tell us your approach to money, the one you just mentioned, is not very much popular among the rest of the economists. Yeah, well, it used to. Um, so if you if you go back in history, um, if you look at uh, at Keynes, if you look at Schumpeter, Big Shell, so basically in the period between roughly 1900 and 1900, maybe 1940, the endogenous money story that banks uh, create their own money was was probably the mainstream. Um, and, and by now that has, of course, changed. So now if you look into a textbook, what they often do is they, they talk about the money multiplier and then they say, that central banks are lending to commercial banks and then the commercial banks that they lend out the money to to households and businesses. But the problem is that um, the central bank deposits cannot be uh, cannot be held by the private sector. So it's it's technically impossible that um, that a, a bank, for example, from Italy that has some some balances with the European Central Bank, that it's lending out those those balances to to somebody. Uh, who who is a household or somebody who has a firm? Because we, as households and we as firms, we don't have we don't have bank accounts at the ECB. So it's it's a technical impossibility. Um, and if you ask central banks, they they admit that. And um, there was once a paper written by the chief economist, I think, of Standard and Poor's, and the the paper title was "Repeat After Me: Banks Cannot and Do Not Lend Out Reserves." Um, he meant to the private sector. So, so that is something which I think it's it's kind of easy to see if you ask if you ask people in banks, for example, when they make loans, whether they contact their treasury department to see whether they have enough money in their bank. That doesn't exist. They don't do that. Um, so I had a student here at Free University Berlin who who went to Berliner Sparkasse, which is the the public savings and loans bank here in, in Berlin, and and he asked them, "Do you have in your business processes when you make a loan somewhere?" Uh, a contact between the the lender, so the the 
basically the banker or the, the clerk who's doing the loan, the loan clerk, and the treasury is to check whether enough money is there. And the answer was no, we don't, we don't check whether we have enough money. Um, and last year, Deutsche Bundesbank, the, the central bank of Germany, they published a paper in April 2017 confirming this view, also saying now that money is basically, or bank deposits are created uh, by, by loans uh, of, of banks. Yeah, I think a few years ago, even the Bank of England published a very famous working paper on that. But, uh, I mean, besides the elites of people who were involved in banking at a high level or uh, scholars as yourself, uh, this could seem to a lot of people such as an, an esoteric detail, something that really does not impact on their lives. So could you instead... Explain us why do you think it matters for economic policy if uh, money is endogenous or exogenous? Mm -hmm. Well, I would first of all say that the, the central bank has, has much less control. So there are some people who believe that the central banks are very powerful because they can determine the money supply. And by determining the money supply, they would determine the, the amount of lending via the money multiplier and they would fix the rate of inflation. So so in this kind of, of neoclassical world where you think that central banks are powerful because you, you believe them to be powerful for the wrong reasons because it's not a fact uh, actually, um, then of course you, you can say I rely only on monetary policy because because I believe it's powerful. Um, but if you if you understand endogenous money and you understand the credit creation, um, then you understand that there's something of a problem because the the interest rates and the level of private investment, they are linked somewhat. Um, but it might be the case that in a decrease in the amount of interest rate by, let's say, 5% uh, will not uh, lead to an increase in private investment. And uh, and then, of course, this to understand this, it's only possible to understand this if you believe that, that banks create their own money and that, that the central bank cannot force them to make loans to the private sector. Uh, so the money multiplier is not something which is in operation and constant all of the time. Uh, and that, of course, leads to, to a more realistic picture where fiscal policy plays a lot, much larger role um, because the, um, the credit cycle basically can be tamed by, by using fiscal policy. Um, and uh, again, in the, in the mainstream view, where, where money is basically cre uh, created by the central bank and then lent out by the banks, uh, there you have an all-powerful central bank and you don't need actually to have fiscal policy. Okay, so the main implication, you would say it's about the, the role of the state and the possibility for the government to try and stabilize or even boost economic activity. That's where you see the final difference lie in terms of economic policy implications. Is that, am I correct? Yes, exactly. So, so the people who believe that the central bank is all-powerful, they would basically downplay fiscal policy. Um, and in the last couple of decades in the Eurozone, for example, we, we could see that uh, aggregate demand was not high enough to to lead to somewhere close to full employment. So, so we always had in the last uh, twenty or thirty years, we had in in Europe, in the European Union, and then in the eurozone, we had always the problem of unemployment. 
Um, and there was almost never an inflationary problem. And we know how to, to fix the inflationary problem. Um, of course, it's a drastic uh, policy to increase the interest rate and then basically to, to decrease the, the amount of private investment. Um, so this, this, of course, could be improved by a job guarantee. Um, but this is an, a side uh, issue. It's, it's not also uh-huh. part of my book. Well, you, we've been describing this interaction between private and public state actors, the central banks and the commercial banks. Mm-hmm. And so by now, listeners are aware that the commercial banks play a role. And so uh, the creation of money and the financial markets are not only complex uh, matter, but also the result of such a complex interaction. But then these bring us to problems. For example, uh, on page 94, there is a box about the manipulation of the uh, LIBOR, which is the agreed interbank um, rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is a case where commercial banks play a role, probably as powerful as a central bank in many respects. And they and we discovered that in 2012, they did it in a, in a dodgy way and they uh, vo- um, they manipulated such a rate. Yes. So the idea that banks are somehow self-regulating, um, that is very damaging um, because the, the, the banks, um, they, they have to be regulated. Even Adam Smith says that in his book, Wealth of Nations, um, that if the banks are not regulated properly, they could drive the whole economy uh, into the abyss. So, um, yeah, you, you have to make sure that the, the regulators, and that's mostly the central bank, and also the authorities uh, who are looking at the uh, at the balance sheets, basically, that, that these authorities uh, are powerful and, and have instruments available to, to check whether the banks are doing well. Um, of course, to some extent, uh, the next credit bubble will always uh, be around the corner. So I think it's it's endogenous in capitalism that you have these, these credit cycles. So in a boom, there's always a lot of optimism and then um, a lot of stuff is produced, um, a lot of debt is incurred, and at some point then... Um, the, the inflation rate takes off. So the central bank says, oh, at some point I have to take away the punch bowl and I believe it's now. So what happens in the US apparently is now that the Fed uh, sees that the inflation rate in the US is 2.5%. They, they apparently think that it's worse to increase the interest rate. Of course, you can argue whether this is not too early, but but that's not the issue here. Um, but that's how, how central banks are, are interacting with the, with the banking system. So as Jaime Minsky said, the, the instability in the capitalist system is upwards, not downwards. So so the main problem of policy is you have to stop uh, the inflation that comes from the next credit cycle. Um, how to solve the problem of, of basically a recession, that I think is in terms of economics, it's very easy to understand. So if the private sector is not spending and you have unemployment because the private sector is actually trying to save a lot of money and you need more public spending, um, that's the, the only solution basically available. So, so that is that is I think easy to to understand. Uh, let's go then to practical examples because the first part is more theoretical, and then we go to the European case, which is very much indeed practical. And from your book, we learn that um, the Swedish central bank is uh, the oldest uh, in, in Europe. Um, probably in the world, um, and uh, you uh, talk widely about uh, the European monetary area, of which uh, Sweden uh, does not uh, take part. Um, the book is about uh, Euro as a failed project. 
Uh, but then when I read uh, when the Swedish Central Bank was born, and this is a few centuries ago, I thought maybe it's clearly too early to judge uh, Euro as a failed project, being such a, a young creature, such a young political and institutional creature. So um, now this is two years after you published the book, uh, and maybe uh, four years after the first edition, the first German edition of the book. Uh, what is your current uh, judgment about uh, the European Common Currency Project? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't recall describing it as a failed project. Maybe I did. Um, so what I meant to say, if I said it like this, is that the, the institutions as they are, as they exist right now in the Eurozone, they do not lead to a stable financial system and hence not to a stable economic system. Um, so I think many people clearly understood before the creation of the euro that, that this would happen. So if you if you read articles by Wynne Godley, for example, from the United Kingdom, he has an article, I think, from 1993 uh, in the London Review of Books called Maastricht and all that. And, and he says exactly that, that if you have a demand shock, which means that you have rising unemployment in one member state, and uh, for some reason um, the, the monetary policy cannot help, uh, that, that then fiscal policy cannot come to the rescue. So people can then choose between basically being hungry and emigrating. Um, and I think that was pretty pretty interesting that some people from or some economists from the UK got it right. Um, even those economists who are on the right, they, they agreed with this, arguing in New Keynesian terms about the real interest rates and so on. They basically said that the creation of the currency is missing as an option and then it would be very, very difficult to come back if once your economy goes down. So Sweden stayed out of the of the euro um, and, and the UK did so too. Most of the US economists were critical, again, uh, across all, all left-wing, right-wing. Um, I remember Paul Krugman writing about the, the lessons of Massachusetts for the euro and so on. So, so a lot of a lot of economists warned before the euro was created that something something here would not really work out. Uh, and I think history proves them right. Um, and I think when when we look into the future, there's there's these two options that I describe in my book. Either you're trying to save the euro, and you basically say, look, uh, we we now have a European industrial structure, um, and and we need to to basically stay with that. So so we need a euro treasury, for example, or you basically say. Uh, for political reasons, it's it's not possible to work with this, this institutional framework, and and we have to to stop doing that. So so of course nationalization of of the currency would also be an option. Um, but yeah, I, I think these are two two options that are on the table. Um, but of course it's it's very difficult to, to see before what are the advantages and disadvantages of the two. Dirk, could you ask a little bit more about the sort of things that you think are required in order to save the euro and if the debates that are currently being taken place, for example, uh, the proposals by Emmanuel Macron or the answer by the, the joint team of French and German economists, uh, do you think they are enough or they are in the, at least in the right direction? Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Now, I think what, what we need... 
So in, in very general terms, what we need in the Eurozone is, is somebody who can basically spend in times of economic crisis. Um, so we need some kind of institution which, which is responsible for fighting unemployment by spending more money when other people are not spending money. Because in the end, it's, it's basically spending money that creates income and that creates jobs. So, so somebody has to do it. Um, when we all had our own currencies, we were using the public sector to do that. Um, and the private sector, I mean, you cannot force households to spend in times of crisis. You cannot force firms to spend in times of crisis. So it has to be the public sector. So either you say on the European level that you, you have a euro treasury and they issue euro bonds and, um, and then they, they spend money. Um, and the ECB would be allowed to buy up these bonds on the secondary markets without limits. Um, so you know that this is a fail-safe asset. This is basically a risk-free asset. Uh, and then, of course, they would have enough firepower to, to eliminate all the unemployment that we have in the Eurozone. So that is basically one possibility, which is a federalist, federalist story. So basically, Europe and the Eurozone would become more like United States of Europe. Um, which means more political integration. Um, of course, the, the political question here is who who determines on what that money that the Euro Treasury uh, basically spends. Um, so who determines uh, on with on what this money is spent? And there was, I think, uh, Thomas Piketty said we need some kind of eurozone or eurogroup parliament, um, which has about 110 uh, uh, people from, from different member countries. Um, but of course, you could just take the European Parliament, um, just like a normal democracy, and then the government uh, can, can basically choose on which projects to spend the money. Um, so this would be basically um, yeah, a solution in which you need more democracy. And when you get that, you can have then the Euro Treasury, um, and that would solve the European unemployment problem. Um, but of course, politically, it's hard to see how this is supposed to happen uh -huh. now. But this is technically one possibility. And Macron was, was going into the right kind of direction, I think, with his proposals. Um, of course, you can start small and in the next crisis, you make things bigger. Um, but what we have to stop, for example, is, is these austerity policies. Um, so, yeah, Euro Treasury, which theoretically would go into the right kind of direction. And again, if it's too small in the beginning, uh, you can always blow it up and make it bigger when the next crisis hits. Um, mm. And well, the idea of, of basically going back to your own currency, well, it, it, will, it will matter maybe a little bit that you have government bonds that are uh, basically issued in London and then you're supposed to repay euros. So, so maybe there's some kind of, of problem with international investors, um, but I think that that can be fixed. Yeah, but um, I mean, you talked about the necessity for the public sector to spend during a crisis. And this, of course, resonates uh, within, for example, uh, the sort of audience that we have in my country, in Italy, where we're currently still under, during a crisis. But in many European countries, I suppose uh, a legitimate answer could be what crisis? Like, recovery is going on in a number of countries in Europe, even if uh, on unequal, unequal terms. And that is why I would like you to comment a little bit about what do you think is politically possible given uh, specifically the German mission? I mean, being yourself from Germany. <clears throat> No, um, I think you have to you have to basically look in, inside those countries. Um, not all the Germans are doing well. 
Um, it's it's basically the capitalists who are doing well. I mean, profits are extremely high. Um, our our business sector now is net saving uh, financial assets. So, so that is something which is uh, outrageous, if you want. So you have a capitalist system, and and the firms are net savers. Um, they, they're not they're not going into debt. Um, so there is some kind of problem because if you have households and they want to be net savers, and, and then you have firms and they want to be net savers. Well, then, of course, you need to have somebody who is running a deficit. And right now it's it's the rest of Europe. Um, so um, in, inside Germany, there's, there's winners and losers. And, of course, those people working in the external sector, creating the exports, they, they probably won. But there's also many people who did not. So the, the uh, Deutsches Institut für Wirtschaftsforschung, so the German Institute for Economic Research here in uh, in Berlin, which is government-sponsored, I, I think they said that... Um, that 40% of the German populations were basically cut off from increasing uh, purchasing power in, in the first years of the euro. Um, that, is, that is quite a lot. So inequality here is also stable. So you have employment going up and up and up, but, in, but inequality is stable. That, that's also not what should be happening. We should see that inequality is shrinking because more people have jobs. Um, so, so basically, it, it shows you that in, in Germany, we have a lot of inequality and there's only a few people who, who benefit from this kind of economic system. Uh, but politically, they, they seem to be very powerful. Um, but of course, when you, when you look at the situation in the Eurozone right now, um, I think Larry Summers was in Sintra with the ECB people uh, over the summer. And, and he said that central banking is basically about one instrument, and that's the 5% interest rate cut. Um, and the ECB can do that in the next recession. Um, so I, I would argue that that if if in the eurozone we we have again a recession, maybe caused by by the recession that apparently the Fed is creating in the United States, um, then we we have a big big problem because the, the United States will be in recession. Probably China will go into recession as well because they export a lot to to the United States, and and then we will be basically without monetary policy. Um, so I think that um, that we we we're basically way off the cliff. Um, so of course you could say Germany is stable and there's nothing happening here. But if you look at at the elections in Bavaria yesterday, the Social Democrat Party had not even ten percent. Uh, so the last elections in Bavaria they had twenty. Now they have ten. So so it seems like politically the idea that in Germany we're doing well. It's it's not working because the people are rejecting this this story. Um, they they don't vote for the Christian Democrats or in this case the the uh, Christian uh, Social Union. Um, so I think we have quite a lot of trouble even inside Germany. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry if I'm asking about this, but I mean we don't want to <laughs> tell everything about the book because people have to read it. Uh, just connected to your last observation. Um, even if you say uh, things are not going great for everybody in Germany, it seems to me that uh, still those who are not faring well are not politically converging towards the sort of positions that you argue for. That will be uh, more Europe, stronger fiscal intervention, expansionary policies. Or am I wrong? I have not decided yet what kind of uh, policy would be okay. best. I mean, I think I'm... I'm an economist, so I, I basically in my book I end saying there's there's two two roads. One is more European integration with the Euro Treasury. The other one is back to national mm. currencies. 
So, so as an economist, I, I would also say, look, these are political decisions. Um, so I, I, I think that, that even those political decisions have to be based on economic theory. Um, they, they should not be, be basically uh, based completely on, on economic theory. Um, so, but, but I agree that right now, it seems in Germany right now, that the the idea of having more European integration it's it's not very likely that this will happen right now so so I would oh. agree with with your idea about the, the current situation here yeah this is a problem also also in Italy and in other countries so they they, they the populists are complaining against the euro but what apparently would be required for a more successful uh, euro is exactly what they do not want, which is the, the federalist mo uh, model, or at least uh, some more uh, powers for the commissions, for the European Commission. Uh, but well, we, we had a chancellor once uh, in Germany, Helmut Kohl from the Conservative Party, and uh, people were against reunification, <laughs> and he did it anyway. People were against uh, having having one currency in Germany, he did it anyway, and people were against joining the euro, and he did it anyway. So I, I think to some extent uh, we we see politicians who are afraid of the public, but they they're not strong leaders. Um, they they should basically say this is a policy that works, and when we do that, it will work, and there will be less unemployment, and there will be more people with income, uh, wages might go up uh, over the whole board, and then afterwards, after four years, when the next elections will, will happen, uh, many people are better off. And uh, I think that that the politicians in Europe they make a mistake if they look at the populists um, and then say we we have to somehow appease them or something or we have to we have to be very slow now with reforms because people wouldn't like it. I think the, the what the people are saying is we don't like this kind of system that we are running right now. So please change it. Um, so so not doing anything is is really not an option. Uh, it will give all the momentum to to the populists. Okay. Also mentioned that uh, as an economist, you would prefer to um, highlight options for the people and then uh, possibly there should be some political decisions. And you have been careful also to remind us just uh, a few seconds ago that the second option would be, in your view, to just abandon the euro and go back to uh, national currencies. Uh, I would like to ask you if you think... Um, this option would not risk creating more inequalities than it, they are currently accumulating within the Eurozone. And uh, if you think this is something that could really happen, a risk of renationalization of currency, of currencies. First, I would approach this kind of question from, from a historical perspective. And I think that I, I read in academic literature that in the 20th century, we had 50 currency areas that broke up. Um, the last one in Europe was the, uh, the Yugoslavian Currency Union, if you want. Um, and I think even more, well, maybe after that, you had the Czechoslovak uh, nation state breaking up into the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic. So they also used to share a currency. Now they have two. Uh, we never heard anything about the Czechs and the Slovaks somehow suffering from, from losing a common currency. Um, so I, I think that that going back to, to your own currency probably is not, not that much of a big deal. Um, and if you look into the data again, and if you compare, compare unemployment rates in the Eurozone with those of countries that are outside of the Eurozone, say United Kingdom, Sweden, 
Switzerland, um, but also other countries like Romania, Bulgaria, um, then I think the the case cannot easily be made that somehow inside the euro you are safe and you are growing faster and there's less unemployment. I, I don't think so. The same internationally, the eurozone is underperforming uh, when compared to the United States, to China, to Japan. Um, so um, I would say that it, it, the biggest problem probably is the big exporting sector in Germany. Um, because if you back, go back to national currencies, then, then Germany has a big, big problem because the, the Deutschmark will go up and then those exporting companies will find themselves priced out of the markets and Germany will have a, a huge amount of unemployment. Um, when it comes to Greece, I mean, and, and also Spain, um, and perhaps to some extent Italy, I mean, if you have lots of unemployment and you have really no, no vision of how to re remove that, um, then I would say that, that probably you're better off with your own currency. Um, so, um, again, it's a political issue because you don't know what the other side will do to you. Um, you, you see that with, with Brexit. I mean, now we have a country that goes out of the European Union. And I, I believe that, that Europe is playing for no deal at all to make it as harmful as possible for, for the United Kingdom to, to leave. Um, so leaving the euro would be a problem if it's one country doing it but if it's more than one country doing it um, then of course there might be some kind of enlightened negotiation that we basically say look we're trying to go back to the european union pre-1999 uh, so we have the internal market it's just that we give up the euro um, and then maybe we can talk about it because everybody knows that that if we are divided politically that of course is it would be a big big problem so, so leaving the euro and being divided in Europe, I think it, it would be a bad choice. Um, but of course, maybe there is no other choice. So again, these are um, largely political questions. I understand. I mean, um, I'm sure opinions will strongly diverge among economies on the possible consequences of a euro breakup, but uh, possibly... This is, I mean, we, we don't have time to discuss all, uh, all the single details of that. I would write, rather to uh, come back to the most more theoretical part of your book on modern monetary theory. Um, because while we're talking, it's now more or less half an hour, you have been, uh, often, you have been making references to international relations. So, for example, you said if both businesses and families want to uh, save, then the country has to have. Uh, net exports toward the rest of the world or other examples like this. And this reminds me of a relatively common criticism of modern modernity theory. That is, several economists think it only applies to the US because the US is basically the only truly sovereign uh, country due to the exorbitant privilege, the dollar. Uh, do you think the euro could, could become slowly something similar to what the dollar is today in the international economy? And do you think that is a necessary step in order for money to really be uh, the sort of instrument for economic policy that you argue for? Or do you think we would already be fully able uh, to do a completely different sort of policy in Europe? Well, first of all, I would say that, that modern monetary theory uh, applies to, to the euro, to the United States, to Canada, to the United Kingdom, to Japan. I mean, to all countries. I mean, it's an examination of balance sheets. And if you have political constraints, for example, if you have a dollarized economy, then, of course, modern monetary theory would, would basically say, yeah, well, 
if you have first to, to borrow US dollars in international markets be before you spend them, then of course you're constrained and you cannot fight unemployment because you might not be able to borrow international US dollars. Um, but I mean, even countries like, like Canada, for example, there you have the Bank of Canada, which is forced by the law to buy uh, government bonds. So if the Canadian government wants to spend, they can basically push those bonds to to the central bank, and they get they get credit. So they get bank deposits at the tre at the at the central bank, and they can spend. So the Canadian government, just like the U.S. government, well, actually, it's it's even it's even better in, in a way. So the Canadian government can can spend without having to tax, without having to sell bonds to private sector investors. Um, so, so of course, in the eurozone, this is not allowed. So the ECB is not allowed to finance governments directly, um, which does not really make sense because it means that governments can go bankrupt. And Mario Draghi fixed that problem by basically saying, look, we buy up those treasury bonds in the secondary markets, and then everybody expects that you can always sell government bonds of the eurozone countries for, for the going price. And, of course, if... If you do what Draghi does, then you would have some kind of competitor to the euro. euro. Okay, so then you would have some kind of stable currency. You would have a, a very liquid and stable bond market. And at some point, maybe uh, the euro might be a competitor to, to the US dollar. Uh, but of course, as long as you do weird economic policy experiments like austerity and what they did to Cyprus, and, and then they, they forced Ireland to nationalize the banks, and they wrote a letter to Berlusconi and so on. I mean, all these things are, are really not not uh, imp improving the, the perception of international investors. They they have little trust in the Eurozone institutions if, if, they, if they act in, in this kind of way. Um, so I think the Eurozone institutions, they have to be reformed just a little bit um, to to make to make the euro work, and um, again the, the the question is, the, and that's an economic policy question. So who is fighting unemployment in the eurozone, and and who is politically responsible? Because right now, it's the national governments which are politically politically responsible, um, but they don't have they don't have the spending power. And on the European level, they they don't fight unemployment. They, they, they could if, if they wanted to, probably. Um, and the ECB alone can do it because they, they're, not, they're not supposed to engage in fiscal policy. I mean, a helicopter drop by the ECB would probably work, but it's, I think it's complete overreach of the central bank if they would do it. Uh, let, let me just ask you a, a clarification. Um, when you say the main um, constraint in the political, because the central bank cannot buy um, public sector bonds, um, do you imply that if that was possible, um, there could be any sort of uh, expansionary policy with no risk of inflation at all? No, no. Um, government spending is, is limited by the amount of resources that you have. And then, of course, you, you might run into inflation problems. So I, I'm not arguing that, that governments should spend uh, if they can, but they should spend if there's unemployment. Okay, so um, that's the point. Well, yes, in your book, in fact, you also make a point which is uh, uh, deficit uh, is fine up to a point, but uh, if we reform the European um, currency area uh, in, in a progressive way, uh, governments shouldn't have to face the cost of, of risk. So you support the idea that the design of the euro area is, uh, should go in a direction where, uh, for example, the spread between uh, the, the national sovereign debts and uh, 
uh, that of um, our member states do not diverge too much. So definitely it's fine, of course, up to a point. But at the moment, the, EU, the members of the European area are facing excessive costs of divergence of, uh, of uh, perception of risk. Well, um, okay, let me... It will take two or three minutes to explain this, but let me try to do that anyway. Um, I think the stability and growth pact is is the answer to your question to some extent. So if we would not have a stability and growth pact, um, then, of course, what might be the problem? Well, national governments might just spend, spend and spend, um, and uh, they would increase debt, they would increase spending because politically it might work because you create a lot of employment, you have probably rising uh, wages if you if you spend more and more. So I agree that we need in the Eurozone to have something like the Stability and Growth Pact to limit, to limit national spending. Um, it's the same with U.S. states, for example. So U.S. states also have to have a balanced budget over time. Yes, they can borrow from the private sector, uh, but then they have to pay private sector interest rates. Um, and U.S. states also can go bankrupt. So in, in the Eurozone, what the problem is, is it's the, the budget deficit of the Stability and Growth Pact of, of only 3%. That is a number which is just plain wrong. So it, it doesn't work. Um, so you should give give more fiscal space, if you want to call it this. If you, you should give more fiscal space to the national governments. And there should be also rules that in times of crisis, the Stability and Growth Pact does not apply so that you can, that as a country, you are allowed to run some kind of counter-cyclical policy. Um, and that is that would be one of the solutions, basically, to to play around with the the three percent of of the allowed budget deficit. Um, again, the the more direct solution would be a euro treasury, which is is spending money on the European level. Um, I I hope that I I answered your question. Yeah, yeah, but in fact, the reason why uh, nations are constrained and they do not go. Beyond the, beyond the three percent, actually the limit is which is uh, usually lower today is not that there is a limit because in fact the, the powers of the European Commission are rather limited. The actual constraint is that the, the financial markets would would attack the the sovereign debts at national level and would ask the governments to pay very high interest rate. So for for two reasons, uh, fiscal deficit is uh, actually constrained. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the the solution of the Euro Treasury would lighten the pressure on national governments. So if on the European level you spent maybe 250 billion euros per year, then of course it would create a lot of tax income for the nation states, so their budget deficits would fall. So so if you have a deficit spend at the European level, it would mean that the, the debt situation for the nation states would improve by quite a lot. And that means that the international investors will basically start to, to believe again that this kind of debt burden that the nation states are, are carrying, that this is somehow sustainable. Um, I mean, if you look at Japan, for example, their debt to GDP ratio is 230% or something. And that of Greece is probably something around 180%. So Japan shows you, of course, that, that you can run a, a total debt level, which is quite high if you want to, if you have institutions where the Bank of Japan supports the, the Japanese treasury, and they do. So the Bank of Japan bought 70%, I believe, of the treasury bonds last year in, in the Japanese markets. Um, and of course, in the eurozone, you, you can have that with the euro treasury. So so that is that is a possibility. And then the markets cannot attack the euro treasury because the ECB is allowed to buy up well, all of the treasury bonds on the secondary market if they if they have to. So so that means that the the state is always in control and that the state cannot run out of money. 
um, which is one of the MMT uh, ideas that that the, the state is the sovereign and hence as the creator of money cannot run out of money. And that's what we need to use uh, either on the European level or again at the national level. Okay. But um, Dirk, just possibly one of the uh, final questions. Um, within the two scenarios that you describe, uh, a reform of the Eurozone or a breakup of the Euro area, uh, which one do you think is more likely? Oh, well, that is a very difficult question. So, I mean, when it comes to, I think Germany is probably the clue to, to this question. Um, they, they really did not reply to, to Macron. Um, but the question, what is the next German government going to look like? That is completely open. So as I said, both the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats of Germany, they, they are losing election after election. And I think in the polls right now, they, they would not even have 50% of the vote. So what is happening in Germany is what happened to France, apparently. Um, the, the big parties, uh, they, they lose their voters. And I mean, who would have guessed that Macron would now be president of France mm. before the last French elections? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very open. Um, so I, I would say right now, I would probably tend to believe that, that a break of, of the euro is, is more likely than European integration. Um, but uh, I think in the end, it's, it's a battle of ideas. And uh, so far, um, to, to push for this idea of, of having more European integration and to have um, a European spender of last resort, if you want to call it that, um, that basically tries to, to fix the unemployment problem. I mean, if, if the European Union and the Eurozone, if they would fix the unemployment problem, it, they would be very popular. Um, so again, if, if there are willing politicians who basically say, well, we're doing something now which the majority of our electorate won't like, But I think it will work, so we do it anyway. So, so that is that is always possible. So, I I really can't say what what I think will happen in the future. I I don't know anything is possible. But sorry, just one small follow up about this. Uh, possibly, I too, I I mean, I'm I very much agree that politicians cannot just follow the opinions or, or even the feelings of the people. They should try and lead show the way. But um, don't you think that the sort of approach that you suggest, such as uh, a politician should try and then at the, only at the next election uh, the people will tell us what they think about what actually happened, uh, would it not be prone to the sort of accusations of the euro area not be, being truly democratic, of the people not having enough of a voice about what's, what's going on, what political decisions are taken? Well, I mean, we, we've been talking about the democratic deficit of the European Union for, for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, we, we, I mean, we have to work inside those institutions. Um, but, I mean, creating a Euro treasury uh, is, is possible. I mean, we created a lot of institutions uh, during the crisis, like the Eurogroup, for example. There's, there's nothing in the legal text about the Eurogroup. Um, we, we created this European Monetary Fund idea and so on. We had lots of, of other institutions in between trying to stabilize things. Um, so, again, if there's a political will, 
um, then of course we could create something to to save the 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 eurozone and to save the European Union if you want. Um, so the question is just. Uh, can you sell this to maybe left and right wing parties at the same point of time? Because I mean, we would need majorities in basically all of the countries. So, so well, you you would have to have some kind of pan European agreement again. It's not very likely that you'll get it, but maybe if if a couple of bigger countries, let's say Germany, Italy, France, uh, if they agree on a euro treasury, they can buy the consent of the other countries. I'm I'm pretty sure. So this is also how it worked in, in the United States, that, that some of these smaller U.S. states, um, if, if they have to agree to something, they, they get something in return. But, but again, that's politics. Okay, if, if I don't know if Slovakia is not happy with mm-hmm. the Euro Treasury, you can ask them, so what do you want? Okay, so we create the Euro Treasury and you get something. Okay, just, I don't know, maybe nice train stations or high-speed trains or, or free universities or you get the European Commission of something. I mean, these kind of political deals, they can always be done. So uh, again, I think that that if if it's a battle of ideas and if this idea of, of having a Euro Treasury, if that is popular and, and people basically try to go for it, I think then it's it's still possible even in 2019, let's say, uh-huh. uh, to, to basically to push for this. Well, uh, maybe we have to conclude here our conversation uh, and we leave uh, the book uh, to the readers. Um, actually, this last uh, topic, let me remember um, a keynote speech by Martin Wolf at the US of Nottingham a few years ago. This was before the, the Brexit referendum. Uh, we were in 2012 and it was the apex of the uh, crisis of the um, sovereign debts in Europe. And he forecasted that uh, some countries would have left. Probably at the time he also mentioned Italy. And my, my comment to his uh, forecast was, uh, yes, this might happen, but might happen even the contrary, which is uh, maybe uh, Britain will leave because uh, we would need uh, a further political integration and problems that prevented this to, uh, to happen will, will become uh, more visible um, uh, during the crisis of the of the of the euro. Uh, well, Martin Wolf forecast at the time was wrong. My forecast instead was right, and only um, three years later, four years later, uh, Britain had this referendum and um, is now approaching to leave the European Union. So I am very optimistic about uh, the survival of um, the European project. If anything, not least because um, I imagine that the cost of its failure w- would be huge, much more than you, Dirk, um, are arguing, in fact. But anyway, this was a very interesting conversation about a very interesting book, very timely. So, Dirk, probably you will have to write another edition soon, maybe next year or maximum in a couple of years when the, <laughs> the problems of the current crisis will be solved. And uh, for our for our readers and listeners, this is... Uh, Modern Monetary Theory and European Macroeconomics, Dirk Ernst, published by uh, Routledge in 2016. Dirk is a lecturer in economics at Bard College, Berlin. Thank you very much, Dirk, and thank you, Carlo, for being with us today. Thank you, Andreas. Thank you, Carlo.